This is the third of a three-week series I've been doing. I do this now and then on a particular part of the Buddhist teachings. And I'm curious, who's been here for the first two? Can you raise your hands high again so I can just get... Okay. I get that there's a lot that haven't. Let's see. Who hasn't? (laughs) Can I see your hand? Yeah. So don't worry, because I'll kind of wind it all together somehow. (laughs) In the Buddhist psychology, there's described uh, three characteristics, or three basic marks of reality. And for anyone that pays deep attention, and when I say deep attention, not conceptual, but deep non-conceptual presence, these truths reveal themselves. They're just the nature of things. Talking about them can get tricky because the true recognition of each of them comes through this unconditional non-conceptual presence. Nonetheless, it can be useful to reflect some with words and then, and then bring it into our meditation. So that's what we've been doing. The first of the three characteristics is described in Pali as dukkha, which really means unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes we, we think it's suffering, and it can have the intensity of anguish, but it's really wanting life different. Dukkha is that universal kind of tendency to have a, a restlessness and a, a tumbling into the future and right now is not okay, something's wrong, something's missing. It's that undercurrent. And sometimes, as I mentioned, it's very subtle and sometimes it's really anguish. Um, The gift of dukkha, when we bring a full attention to it, when we really open to that unsatisfactoriness, is that we discover a space of incredible tenderness and compassion. And when we open to another person's dukkha or suffering and really are very directly with that, that same tenderness wakes up in us. So each of these characteristics or truths has a gift when you open up to them. The second of the three characteristics is anicca, which means impermanence. And again, that's something that everyone here will go, yeah, I know, everything's always changing. In the deep experience of anicca, there's a kind of a radical sense of impermanence where you just get in a moment-to-moment way how it's all groundless, how it's all moving, how if any attempt to hold on, um, it's like a moving rope, you get rope burn. And the freedom that comes from that gift of, of sensing impermanence is this sense of truly letting go, truly surrendering, and discovering a kind of timeless presence that's aware of the changing phenomena but isn't hooked on it, chasing after it, resisting. True peace. Okay, so those are two. The third of the three marks of reality is called anatta. And it means no self. And sometimes it's described as emptiness. Which is really to say that in this changing display of phenomena of sensations and sounds and ideas and so on, there's no solid entity that you can find. We have an idea of a self. But if we really investigate and and with a non-conceptual attention just notice what's happening, there's no self to be found. The gift, when we really recognize this emptiness, is pure freedom. There's a realization of the what we are, the 
the vastness and awareness and mystery that we can rest in. And then this changing world is something to savor and to serve, but we're not a prisoner anymore. Now, so that's your broad, broad sweep introduction. The last time I gave a talk on no self, I got a little note. I'm going to read it to you. (laughs) It was entitled, the subject line that I got is an email, no self-confusion. Okay, I really like Buddhist practice, and I've been reading dozens of books and listening to lots of talks and sitting in meditation a lot, but I seem to have gotten stuck on this no self thing. I mean... I've worked it out of my head lots of times, and I think I can explain how I feel about it really well, but I just keep getting almost bogged down with the ideas that I don't agree with, but that come from what I would consider misunderstanding the idea of no-self. It's getting so bad, I sometimes want to forget Buddhism and meditation altogether. What should I do? (laughs) No-self-confusion. So, if you're here tonight, you're not alone. Uh, You're not alone. In fact... Often, um, especially in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, while it's, it's one of the three characteristics, there's not a lot of teaching that's pointing us to, you know, with words to understanding no-self because it's so clearly a realization that can only come when the mind is quieted enough so there's truly this very non-conceptual presence. And that thinking about it can be this endless looping, like it's self-torture. So the best way to approach tonight, this is all kind of a way of saying, really um, relaxed, take, let whatever resonates take in, whatever doesn't, just put it aside for now. There's no way you can force yourself into getting, getting something, but just to be open. Okay, so one day a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. (laughs) The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees. I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody at which point the rabbi nudged the cantor with his elbow and pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) (laughs) So it is this kind of high or deep dharma. Dharma is the path. And and even even Lewis Carroll put in his dibs, this is Alice in Wonderland, says, I see nobody on the road, said Alice. I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody, and at that distance, too. (laughs) So maybe what we'll do a little bit tonight is explore how this seemingly real sense of self forms. Because the reality is, in a it's called relative or conventional way, most of us spend most of the time living with the notion that there's a self here. So there's something about saying, okay, so no self. So how does that happen? And it's described in um, Buddhist psychology as some, this kind of mistaken perception of identity, whereby awareness, that which is prior to all, identifies with forms. So when forms arise, whatever the form is, be it a butterfly or a whale or a human body or a thought or a feeling, awareness in some way identifies 
and there's a sense of this is happening to me or something's owning it. And when awareness gets identified with a form, let's say this human body-mind, it forgets its formlessness. So there's a formless essence, life is arising from it, and that formless essence identifies itself with the forms and forgets its source. And that's what's called a trance or a dream. It's that, like living in a dream and not realizing it, and we all know what that's like. When we're, we wake up in the morning and we always, oh, that was just a dream. This exclusive identification with a body-mind is a dream. It doesn't mean there's not a body-mind. It just means that the what we are, it, that's just a fragment. It's a distorted and uh, contracted fragment of the wholeness of what we are. So, as I mentioned, it's a universal perception, though. This trance we're in is universal. And I read from a really wonderful description of the protoclis. And protoclis is a tiny, multi-celled creature. And they're they're considered responsible for inventing locomotion in our form of digestion and so on. None of these early creatures was anything more than a bundle of biochemicals wrapped up in a membrane bag. Even so, in their makeup and activity, we can recognize the inception of a new quality in the universe. These ancient gelatinous specks of matter showed the beginnings of self-interest and purpose. They had established barriers, definite, sustainable boundaries between themselves and the outside world. And although the heady heights of human intellect and introspection lay almost four billion years away, even the most elementary of life forms harbored information about what was part of their own constitution and what was not. Thus the foundations for dualism, the belief of the separation of self and the rest of the world, were laid. So I I find it so interesting. This is from a book called Zen Physics. That... um, it's, not, it's part of the design in some way that awareness gets identified, that there's a sense of a self in here and a world out there. That's part of the evolutionary design. And that with that sense of selfness, there's a fear that this self will get injured and a sense of incompleteness. I need something out there. In the Hindu Vedas, it said, in the beginning, there was simply the absolute awareness. The mind of the absolute present in the infinite dark. Then within the mind of the absolute, there arose the thought, I am. And immediately following that thought, there came fear. So the primal mood of this separate self, of this identification, is fear. And it doesn't mean we're all going around feeling gripped by anxiety, but if there's a sense of selfness in here and world out there, there's some tension, some tightness. You can feel it. And the more you meditate and learn to pause and just check, the more you'll sense some, some subtle clutching. And it's that self-sense. So the self organizes around wants and fears. Our most familiar sense of self is the self that's wanting something or is fearing something. That's the most solid, familiar sense of self. We get organized around it. Something's missing, something's wrong. And as we explored here, very much the glue of self is something's wrong with me. 
If you want to sense when you're most solid, when there's most distance from others, when there's most a sense of something's wrong, it's something's wrong with me. And then we go around trying to control ourselves and the world to make things better. So we develop these strategies. This again, I'm just describing the kind of the evolution of a self-sense and how it gets more and more complex and solid. So we each have our strategies that arise out of this wanting and fearing to try to cope and to try to make the world cooperate with us and to try to make sure we don't fail. And I've, in here I've, ta- I've kind of described it like a spacesuit that we, we incarnate and this world is a bit difficult and inevitably we don't get all our needs met so we develop this spacesuit to get through and it's kind of a, a persona we present to other people so that they'll think we're funny or interesting or okay and it's, it's all the striving to accomplish to keep on reassuring ourselves we're okay all the addictive behavior to keep soothing ourselves. It's our spacesuit to get through. Again, more of this, what I kind of call the false self-sense, this trance. And yet Lily Tomlin said, you know, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat, right? You remember that one? <laughs> so this false self has its strategies and its spacesuit, but it st- doesn't matter what it does. When it's doing it out of wanting and fearing, it's still stuck with the sense of something's wrong. Because here's the deal, the more that we enact all our persona, you know, the more we strive and accomplish and prove and defend, the more identified we are with the spacesuit and the less remembering of who's looking through. You know, who's right here? It's, yeah, we have these body-minds and, yeah, we have our personalities, but who is gazing through those eyes? Who is really the heart that's listening, that's tender. You know, where's that awareness? So there's a forgetting. And this is, this is where the spiritual path comes in. That on an evolutionary basis it's meant to happen that, that awareness gets identified and that these spacesuits and defendedness happens. You know, it's meant to happen that on subtle and on, on more intense ways we say, okay, something's wrong with me. We know the subtle ones. The subtle ones are that when we're with others there's some self-consciousness. You know, there's some sense of either that person's more powerful or, I want, or I'm going to be asked too much of or, you know, there's some, some, some worry about how things are going to go. Sometimes I call it selfing when we're kind of in that self-consciousness. I got somebody emailed me this. Uh, I saw it a long time ago, but emailed it recently after Paul Newman died. A Michigan woman and her family were vacationing in a small New England town where Paul Newman and his family visited. One Sunday morning, the woman got up early to take a long walk. After a brisk five-mile hike, she decided to treat herself to a double-dip chocolate ice cream cone. She hopped in the car, drove to the center of the village, and went straight to the combination bakery ice cream parlor. There was only one other patron in the store, Paul Newman, sitting at the counter having donut and coffee. The woman's heart skipped a beat as her eyes made contact with those famous baby blue eyes. The actor nodded graciously, and the star-struck woman smiled demurely. Pull yourself together, she chided herself. You're a happily married woman with three children. You're 45 years old, not a teenager. 
The clerk filled her order, and she took the double-dip chocolate ice cream cone in one hand and her change in the other. Then she went out the door, avoiding even a glance in Paul Newman's direction. When she reached her car, she realized that she had a handful of change, but her other hand was empty. Where's my ice cream cone? Did I leave it in the store? Back into the shop she went, expecting to see the cone still in the clerk's hand or in the holder on the counter or something. No ice cream cone was in sight. With that, she happened to look over at Paul Newman. His face broke into his familiar, warm, friendly grin, and he said to her, You put it in your purse. That was one of my favorite selfing stories where we get so caught up in our so this this ego self, this false self, the, this self that thinks something's wrong and has to present, it's also playing out in spiritual life. You know, the trance that we're in as a self in spiritual life is that we're a self that needs to keep on refining and perfecting and getting better in order to get there. In other words, we're forgetting what's always and already here. I mean, the Buddha taught that the enlightened, awake heart is always and already here. And that the only trance is that we are hitched to an identity of a self that thinks it's not there yet. In the moments that we stop striving, in the moments that we start stop thinking that enlightenment is down the road or in another person or only happened in exotic places 2,500 years ago. And we begin to bring this courageous presence to what's right here. We discover a quality of sacredness that was eluding us because we were caught up in the pursuit of something. So, do you understand that we're, when we're on our way, we miss out on what's here? And that's just part of the self-sense to think it's a he or a she that's got places to go and things to do and not really absolutely wholeheartedly sense what's right here. So it's a natural part of evolution, this selfing. It's also natural. It's part of our built-in capacity to become aware of that and awaken to who's really looking through the mask. We have what's called self-reflexive awareness. We can become aware of the selfing and wake up out of the trance. That's our capacity. It's our capacity to see through that smaller identity, that we are not limited. One of my friends described going to Asia, and he's teaching in the United States, and he went to Asia and met with some of the great Thai masters, And one of them asked him, you know, well, what's the essence? Kind of like testing him a little. What's the essence of the Buddhist teachings? And his response is, the essence is that no self is to be found in any phenomena. No self. And the teacher just started laughing and laughing and said, no self, no problem. No self, no problem. He just kind of laughing and cheerful. One of the Thai teachers that teaches over here now, his mantra is, empty, empty, happy, happy. You know, like, you're empty of self. No problem. And then there's Wei Wu Wai who says, Why are you unhappy? Because 99% of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll share the... um, 
one of the verses that to me has really, that describes it I think very beautifully, which is uh, Sri Narsargadatta. He says, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. I'm going to say that again. Just listen. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. So without a conceptual understanding of no-self, there are two gateways that really reveal that there's not a solid... it's been a dream, there's not a solid entity in here. And one gateway, the gateway of wisdom, is this, this total presence without any thoughts that just recognizes, oh, what's here is an awareness that includes the thoughts and the sensations and the emotions, but that the what I am is prior to. There's a mystery here. So that's the wisdom tells me I'm nothing. There's no thingness to be found. But love tells me I'm everything. You know, when we're in love, there's not a sense of separate self. There's a sense of this belonging or this connection or this just being part of the one. So this was the big inquiry the Buddha offered, really, is, is how do we deepen our attention so we can realize that wisdom, realize that love, realize the vastness and mystery of what we are. That was the inquiry. And what motivates us I mean, what motivates any of us when I ask that question, what brings you here, is that in some way we intuit that love and that mystery and that vastness. You wouldn't be here if you totally believed in the dream. There's some intuition of something sacred, something timeless, something beautiful, some basic goodness that, that we can sense it takes some cultivation of attention to tap into, but it's here. And it, this experience of I'm nothing and I'm everything is not an exotic realization really. It's not something again down the road when you've become gone to your you know, fourth month-long retreat or something. In fact, it arises for each of us in the moments of simplicity, when things are quiet or simple and when we're not in a reactive kind of state. So you might sense the mystery when, you know, it's the early hours, sometimes before sunrise, when there's a kind of silence. Or when you're contemplating the unfathomable depths of space, the stars. And when we get struck by it, we sense that that space is what we are that stillness is what we are, the beauty of the natural world. When we resonate with it, it's because that beauty is what we are. We are the natural world. The natural world's not out there. We're made of the same elements, the same mystery. Rachel Raymond, who I love, she's a physician, a writer, teacher, she, she told this story and I wanted to share it with you. For the last ten years of his life, Tim's father suffered from early Alzheimer's disease. Despite the devoted care of Tim's mother, he had slowly deteriorated until he became a sort of walking vegetable. He was unable to speak and was fed, clothed, and cared for as if he were a very young child. 
One day, Tim and his brother were home with their father while their mother was out shopping. They were watching football as their father sat nearby in a chair. Suddenly, he slumped forward and fell to the floor. Both sons realized immediately that something was terribly wrong. His color was gray and his breath was uneven and rasping. Frightened, Tim's older brother told him to call 911. Before he could respond, a voice he had not heard in ten years, a voice he could barely remember, interrupted. Don't call 911, Tim. Tell your mother that I love her. Tell her that I'm all right. And Tim's father died. So Tim, now a cardiologist, goes on. Because he died unexpectedly at home, the law required that we have an autopsy. My father's brain was almost entirely destroyed by his disease. For many years I've asked myself, who spoke? Who are we really? I've never found the slightest help from any medical knowledge. Much of life cannot be explained. It can only be witnessed and lived. So there's a mystery of consciousness of what's really here that's prior to any of the thoughts or activities or behaviors of the body and the brain. And all we can do is really reflect on our own lives and begin to explore how that mystery is lived through our lives. Um, And I'd like to invite you to do a reflection right now. Just kind of take a moment to check in. We're going to do a couple of meditations tonight that really each have to do with waking up out of the trance. And take a moment to feel yourself here. Feel your breath. And just relax a bit. I'm going to do a little bit of a, a very brief review of life and just to kind of scan and sense early memories, just sense yourself as a very, very young child, anything you might remember being young, playing, dinner table, maybe a scene of what you most liked doing. And just sense your body or your sensations or anything about you, the image of what you looked like, what your preferences were. So there you are, a very young child, and then maybe older, you're in elementary school. You might sense the classroom and what your thoughts or your feelings or excitements or fears. Again, just to scan lightly here. You don't have to go for big memories. And then a young teen and what, again, all the insecurity or concern or excitements there, what mattered to you what your body was like, high school. Just keep rolling it forward in your mind. Maybe relationships, if there was a primary relationship, if you married or partnered, the scene there of getting together and what mattered to you. Again, your appearance, your mood, work kind of work you did or doing now, if you had children. So you're sensing just the changes, the rolling changes of the body, the moods, 
how your personality developed, what mattered, events, attitudes, just to notice how all those elements have changed. But to sense again what's always been there, what's unchanging. What's unchanging that was there as the youngest child, as a teen, young adult, older, sense that what's always been there is that which is experiencing the awareness that all the experience occurs in that everything else is a changing pattern, changing phenomena different looks, different senses of the body, different attitudes but the unchanging, the one who's aware Okay, so opening your eyes. So there are many different ways to begin to kind of sense into this mystery of who we are beyond our habitual way of identifying with a self. Perhaps the most basic is what we do here in meditation, what we call natural presence. That when we really pay attention, we begin to decondition the selfing. Now, the selfing involves trying to control things. If there's any movement to control, there's going to be a sense of a self. If you're trying to control your mind to stay on the breath, there's going to be a sense of a self. If you're trying to control another person, if you're trying to, in traffic, get ahead of those are all selfing. The meditation that liberates stops controlling. It just notices and allows and as we begin to rest in the awareness that notices and allows, that doesn't oppose anything, that doesn't chase anything, that doesn't resist anything, we come back home to that no-self-yet-everything experience. We're not doing something, we're stopping the doing. There was one story I loved of Swami Satchananda, who's a very well-known yogi, he's, he's dead now, but he was one of the Indian yogis that brought over yoga and touched many, many lives in the West. Deep spiritual influence. And one of his students asked him if uh, he had to become a Hindu to practice yoga deeply. And Swami Satchananda's response was, no, I just became an undo. (laughs) And I really like that because that's more really what this path is. We're not doing or perfecting or purifying as much as recognizing the trance and undoing the doing ungrasping the grasping relaxing the resistance in a way it's what I think of as a surrendering presence that keeps I think it was Chogyam Trungpa says we just keep meeting our edge and softening undoing undoing so we practice here 
each week and I hope you practice some at home where you pause and you know maybe do a little doing where you gather with the breath and you purposely relax in the body but then it's just the simplicity of noticing and allowing what happens and often what we're noticing and allowing are the sounds and the sensations and the feelings that are there and what happens is that at first we get lost in thought a lot but as that quiets it simply becomes this changing stream of oh, sound oh, feeling of a clutch here oh, feeling of the breath as it goes in and out just from moving from one thing to the next to the next and Ajahn Chah calls it still flowing water because we're resting in a stillness but there's this flowing phenomena this is again Srinar Sargadatta describing what happens when we practice like this and yes we get lost in thought but gradually like, a, like water that's all stirred up if we just stay and stay it settles some and then there's a deep wisdom that can arise he writes this when the mind is momentarily free from its preoccupations it becomes quiet if you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it you find that it is permeated with a light and a love you have never known and yet you recognize it at once as your own nature if you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it you find that it's permeated with a light and a love you have never known and yet you recognize it at once as your true nature so this is one part of the practice this letting our minds get quiet or not fighting the thoughts but just noticing and letting there be this natural settling that happens when we stay and then in that quietness sounds, sensations but there's some presence that's there and the presence, that light of presence is really our home so there's not a self it takes thinking to sense a self when, when we stop believing our thoughts we arrive in this luminous, still, silent presence now here's what happens though often there's still a kind of a ghost self there's still a sense of somebody's witnessing or it's happening to somebody does that, does that resonate for some of you? like you get pretty quiet and things are pretty still but there's still some sense of somebody's back there kind of guiding the meditation or having a meditation happen to them I think of that as the ghost, ghost self even then you can be, bring that into awareness you can say really who's aware right now? who's listening? who's having a meditation? and if you even bring that what um, Sokni Rinpoche described as the mirror eye that just that very subtle sense of a self in there and that is included in awareness there's a relaxing back into an edgeless, vast freedom so this is a deepening and again, as I mentioned if this sounds um, way out there for you let it sit on the side for a while but if you find yourself getting quiet you might sense, oh, there's a mere eye there's somebody controlling the meditation and just turn and just sense that right there sometimes when there's just very little bits of thoughts you can just say where did that thought come from? where did it go to? and without 
conceptually trying to figure it out, just relax back into what's right there. So what I'm describing now is sometimes um, talked about as self-inquiry, where not only are we practicing this natural presence, but we're actually inquiring who's here and looking into awareness itself. And we're going to, in a couple of moments, practice that together, where there's a sense of a shift from paying attention to the waves of this sound, this sensation, this thought, to who's aware of the waves. And I think of it in terms of ocean waves, that there's always waves going on and we get identified with them and we forget the oceanness. Okay, let's practice. Again, closing your eyes. Actually, you don't have to close your eyes. That's kind of a convention in some traditions. I usually sit with my eyes open. Whatever is more comfortable for you. If I'm in a large group and I'm facing the group, I close my eyes. Just because otherwise people think I'm looking at them. (laughs) If you keep your eyes open, the way to practice is to let the gaze be very soft. So you're looking ahead, but let the gaze spread 180 degrees. So there's a real receptivity that the eyes are receiving the light, the color, the form, the shapes. However you're practicing, though, take some moments to let your body re-relax. You might let there be a few full breaths just to gather the attention right into this here-ness. listening to sound so that you're aware of the coming and going of sound including these words, my voice and sensing the awareness that it's happening in the space it's happening in and listening again, not just with your ears but with all the senses Resting in the awareness that's aware of sound, aware of sensations. Absolutely not controlling anything, just letting it all happen. And you might sense who's aware right now, what's aware, what's listening. It's as if you're turning just to sense what's aware, what's here. But then just relax into whatever is experienced, just be that awareness. Let go. absolutely drop everything, no doing. Just be the space that's awake. 
and get the feel of that. There's a felt sense to that, that awareness. There may be thoughts, but awareness is what's aware of the thoughts. It's prior. It's more essence of what you are. There's sounds, but awareness is what is aware of the sounds, knows the sounds. They occur in awareness. Sense the space that's here, that's awake. There's sensations that you'll feel, and yet awareness is what is aware of the sensations. It's prior. Rest in what you are, in that vastness. In that openness. In that mystery. So being aware of awareness, of the presence that's here. Rumi puts it this way, he says, I'm water, I'm the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself that I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of purling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. So there's different gateways to exploring this third characteristic. Um, When I kind of just do a brief review here, you know, in the last couple of weeks we explored how how the experience of uh, the universal experience that we have most of the time when we're in the trance is of dukkha, of that unsatisfactoriness, where we're kind of caught up in a sense of a self that's on his or her way, now is not enough. If you want a flag of dukkha, there's a sense of, it's just not enough. There's something missing or wrong. As we begin to really pause and open to that experience, instead of grasping out of it or getting busy or speeding up or resisting, we actually open to that unsatisfactoriness. There's a kindness that arises, a compassion. There's space. There's a shift in identity. We shift from that not-okay self to the space that's compassionate. Similarly, 
when we start noticing it's all changing and when I'm trying to control things, stop things, chase things, there's suffering. If we pause, there can be a letting go into the changing currents. And in that letting go, again, a shift in identity. We shift from the self that's mightily trying to manage a life to that timeless presence. So tonight we explore the last of the three characteristics, which is that quality of no self, that when we begin to really investigate the who am I, if we look at our life and we sense all the things we usually hitch our sense of self on, they're changing. What happens when we really pause and sense who's here? When we look into the awareness that's aware. And what it's said in Tibetan tradition, it said the supreme seeing is the seeing of no thing. So if I ask you the question, who's listening right now? And you come up with any answer, that's just another thought. But if the question dissolves a sense of the questioner, that's freedom. That's the purpose of self-inquiry, is not to get an answer that just landing on another bit of ground, another concept. If you turned around when I asked you who's looking and you just couldn't, there's nowhere to land, all you can say is, well, there's space here and there's awakeness, awake space. Then it's just about relaxing into that, being the awake space. So I'd like to um, close with just a, just a final quietness that we can uh, check that out with. And just to honor the pausing. And sense how it is for you right now. You might reflect on the three characteristics sense if there is a quality of enough or is there an edge of a sense of a self that wants something different just honestly no judgment, just notice is there dukkha? is there that leaning forward? that pushing away? and just regard that with a kindness and a presence gentle just to notice how it's all just changing right here in this moment if you're really here sounds just keep changing the vibration and sensation in the body just keeps changing and there's the possibility of just relaxing with that, into that surrendering into the changing phenomena. Just be these ways of changing sounds and sensations, senses wide open, letting go and letting go. And you might sense who's aware of all this. And just turn and look 
Is there anyone that you can find? Just glancing back and then let go into the mystery. Just be the mystery, this consciousness that has no center or no edge. Self-luminous, aware, awake, tender, sense, there's a felt sense of awareness and keep letting go into I am water I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing there's nothing to believe only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of purling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. Namaste. Namaste.